There's a, a lot of you know we are in this series called Faith Quakes, and um, if you could hear that, what the singer is saying, all that, is sh- all that can shake is going to shake. All that can quake will quake to bring the fact from the fake. Those are great words. He's paraphrasing from the Bible, from the uh, book of Hebrews, chapter 12, which says, all creation will be shaken so that only unshakable things will remain. So there will be shaking and quaking that goes on in our life. Um, Some of it is brought about, as Brian was saying, uh, from the enemy, and God allows some of these things to happen to shake us to the point where we understand the things that cannot be shaken and we, and we plant our lives on things that are unshakable, okay? Uh, today, I'm going to be uh, talking on this subject that I, all I could think of to call it was, How Long, Lord? How Long? Uh, you have probably noticed um, that the pace of life seems to keep accelerating, doesn't it? If we're not careful, it becomes a crazy task just to try to keep all the plates spinning, because we want to go faster and faster and faster. Years ago, uh, Citicorp became the number one lender in America just simply by cutting in half the number of days it took for people to find out whether their loan got approved or not. That moved them to number one because they did it faster. Denny's restaurants experienced some kind of huge explosion in their business when they had this campaign that said that they would serve their lunch to you in 10 minutes or less, and they would actually bring a little timer out to your table to see if they pulled it off or not. Domino's became the number one seller of pizzas in the United States because they guaranteed that they would serve to you your pizza within 30 minutes or less. As a matter of fact, the CEO of Domino's said these words, we don't sell pizza, we sell delivery. If you ever tasted Domino's pizza, you'd probably agree. Uh, there was an interview a while back with a guy who drives a delivery car for Domino's, and he said when he's in his car delivering pizzas with that little Domino's sign up on top of his car, that he'll go down the road and people actually pull off to the side of the road to let him go by, like we used to do for ambulances. We don't do that for ambulances anymore. We do it for Domino's pizza drivers because we are a people in a hurry. USA Today had an article a while back about a hospital in Detroit, and taking a cue from Domino's, this Detroit hospital guaranteed that emergency room visits and patients that come into the emergency room would be seen within 20 minutes or their treatment was free. No kidding. And so far, that, you know, that hospital has delivered. The article said, since the offer was first made, business has been up 30%. The mortality rate is up 120%, but, you know, win a few, lose a few. Get them in, get them out. A grocery store chain experimented with shopping carts that had touch screens on them. Why? Because people complain about how long it takes them to go around and find the stuff in the store that they, that they want to buy. So they have these screens on the shopping carts to get them to where they want to find quickly. They still can't get the wheels to work on the carts, but you can see frozen food in HD, and that's, I guess that's a good thing. Listen to this. 50 years ago, Expert testimony before a committee of the U.S. Senate said that technology, labor-saving, time-saving technology was going to change the way that Americans work. That within 20 years, that people would be working only 32 weeks per year on the average, or they'd be working only 22 hours a week, or they would be able to retire by about the time they were 40 years old because we'd be saving all this time through our technology. And this expert testimony said that the number one challenge Americans would face with regard to time 
was simply what to do with all their spare time. Let me just ask you, is this your primary challenge when it comes to time, finding out what to do with all of your spare time? Now, about that same time where this uh, study took place, a new kind of restaurant became really, really popular in America, a restaurant that for the first time in American history sold food not on the basis of quality, not on the basis of price, but on the basis of speed. And we call these restaurants fast food. Not good food, not cheap food, just fast. But even with fast food restaurants, you still had to park the car and get out and go inside and place your order and go find some place to sit, and all that took time. So we invented drive-through lanes so that families could eat in SUVs as God intended. <laughs> and the beautiful thing about this arrangement is that when you're in the car and you don't even have time for a drive-through, well, then the kids can scrounge around in the back seat for French fries and gummy bears. It's like a treasure hunt back there. Well, I say all that to say this. We like it now. We like it fast. And we don't like delays at all. So let me ask you, how do you feel about delays? Do you enjoy a nice, long wait? I don't like to wait. I don't like when I call someplace and I get put on hold. I don't like to wait in line at the bank or Starbucks or the DMV. I don't like waiting at a stoplight behind an accelerator-challenged driver when the light turns green. I hate pulling into Wawa when all the pumps are taken, and I was just kind of wondering how you do it waiting. So I'm going I'm to give us all a little pop quiz here in just a moment. See how you do, multiple choice pop quiz to see how you do at waiting. Just a couple scenarios, but I'm, let me set up the first one. A couple weeks ago, I drove by myself 20 hours up to Connecticut in a rental car. And I'm used to having my son pass with me so I can blow right past all the toll booths. I didn't have this uh, in the rental. So at every toll booth, I had to pull off the highway, get in line, and wait in order to pay for the toll. Do you know how many toll booths there are between here and Mystic, Connecticut? All of them. Every toll booth on planet Earth is between here and Mystic, Connecticut. So here's the first scenario. You're waiting at a toll booth. You're in line at the toll booth, and the driver in front of you is having an extended conversation with the toll booth operator. Here's your choices. A, you're glad they're doing toll booth in community and thinking about starting a life group right there. Or B, you think of things you'd like to interject into their conversation. Or C, you wonder if you can drive your car between them, like... Right in there. So that's the first one. Okay, here's the second scenario. You've been waiting at the doctor's office for over an hour past your appointment time. Here's your choices. You're grateful for the opportunity to catch up on 1989 Reader's Digest. <laughs> you tell all the other patients in the waiting room that you have a highly contagious and fatal disease and you cough out loud a lot. Okay? Or third, you force yourself to hyperventilate and pass out just to make the nurses feel guilty. <laughs> Now, listen, there was one funny guy that put it this way. He said, when you go to the doctor's office, there's no chance of you not waiting. They have a room set aside for that. It's called the waiting room. And he says, after an hour there, then they let you go to a special little room on the, more to the inside where you have to wait more, only there's no magazines there and you have to take your pants off. <laughs> now, those are just a couple of fairly casual kinds of waiting, and we get irritated by those things, but we put up with them. There are more serious and difficult kinds of waiting. 
There's the waiting of a single person to see if God might have marriage and his plan for them. There's the waiting of a childless couple who long to have a family, and yet month after month, even year after year go by, and that prayer just seems to be unanswered. There's the, the waiting of someone who longs for meaningful work, work that means something to them, that's significant, and they care about, but it just doesn't seem to happen. There's the waiting of a depressed person who longs for the day that they just wake up wanting to live, but that hasn't happened in a really long time. One author puts it like this. Here's what he said. Waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot bring about what we hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that seems like a not ever. Waiting is the hardest work of hope. And this is a strange thing for those of us who are followers of Jesus. When we turn to the Bible, this God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving, he keeps saying this word to us that drives us crazy. Wait. Wait. In Psalm 37, verse 7, it says, Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Matter of fact, say those words out loud with me, would you? Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. God comes to Abraham. Abraham is 75 years old, and he says, you're going to become a father. You're going to become the ancestor of a great nation, but not today, not tomorrow. You know how long it was before that promise came true? 24 years, 24 years. Think about that. Abraham was 99 years old when the child of promise came. God spoke to him. God spoke to his wife, Sarah. She was 90, 90 years old. And God is saying to them, the baby is coming. The child of promise is coming for you and for Abraham. He's 99. You're 90. You won't have a single tooth between the three of you. You'll be the only family at public shopping for pampers and depends at the same time. Ever wait 24 years for a, a promise, for an answer to a prayer? God tells Moses that he would lead his people, but then sends them out to Midian for 40 years. And then after guiding his people out of slavery towards the promised land, they wandered in the wilderness, waiting another 40 years. God's people waited for the Messiah for year after year and century after century, and then maybe the strangest of all, when the Messiah came, he was only recognized by very few. He was recognized by those who were waiting for him, it says. Here's how it reads in Luke chapter 2. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day the Spirit led him into the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation. God kept his promise. So the Messiah came to those who were waiting for him. Years later in his ministry, Jesus is asked by his disciples, 
Is this the time that you take over, where you right all the wrongs, where you kick Rome out and take over the world while we stand at your side as your cohorts? Is our waiting over? And Jesus had one command for them. It comes in Acts chapter 1. He says, don't leave Jerusalem, but anybody want to guess the verb that comes? Wait. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait. And they waited. They waited in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit came. But that didn't mean the time of waiting was over for the human race. Paul later writes in Romans chapter 8, he says, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning we, the children of Pentecost, says we groan inwardly while we wait. Anybody groaned inwardly lately? Forty-three times in the Old Testament alone, we're told to wait. And this runs all the way through the Bible. It is cover to cover until the very last words in the last chapter of Revelation. Jesus speaks there and says, The one who testifies to these things says, Behold, I am coming soon, he says. It may not seem like it, but in the light of eternity, it's soon. So hang on. And then John, the writer of Revelation, says, Amen. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Saying, all right, we'll hang on. But then there is this nagging question. You feel it, and I feel it. Why? Why? Why does God make us wait? If he is all-powerful, if he can do anything and he's all loving, why doesn't he bring us relief and help and answers now? I'm in a faith quake now. I don't completely understand all of this, but I believe at least in part what's going on is this. And this is the central point of today's message. And please get this. Jot it down if you can. It's this. What God does in us while we wait is as important as what we're waiting for. Say that with me, would you? What God does in us while we wait is as important as what we're waiting for. Paul comments on this. He says, while we're waiting for God to set everything right, we may suffer. But suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. So God is producing these characters, these characteristics inside of us while we wait. And what that means is, Biblically, waiting is not just something we have to do until we get what we want. Waiting is part of the process of becoming who God wants us to be. So in the moments that remain today, I want to talk about what it means to wait on the Lord. And before I can even get into that, I want to state real quickly what biblical waiting is not, but it's not. Because people get confused about this sometimes. I've talked to people that that get a little wobbly on this. But here's the truth. Biblical waiting is not passive. It's not waiting around for something or someone to come along that will allow you to escape from your problems. Because I've heard people say, I'm just waiting on the Lord as an excuse to not face up to reality or take responsibility for their lives. That's not what waiting on the Lord is. I've talked to people that show consistent disregard for their jobs, no willingness to learn. They demonstrate phenomenal capacity for laziness and just say, I'm waiting on the Lord. That is not biblical waiting. Biblical waiting in a case like that is not just praying that the dream job will find you while you lay on the couch eating popcorn and binging on Netflix. Biblical waiting is not passive, friends, not avoiding unpleasant realities. 
Waiting on the Lord is a confident, disciplined, expectant, active, sometimes painful clinging to God. Waiting on God is a continual daily decision saying, God, I will wait on you, I will trust you, I will obey you, even though the circumstances of my life are not turning out the way that I thought or I hoped, and they may never, but I'm betting everything on you, God, and there is no plan B. And I I believe that the Bible shows us that there are what I think are three requirements for waiting on the Lord and doing it right. And if you want to jot these down, you can jot them down as we go. Here's the first one. Waiting on the Lord requires patient trust. Say that with me. Waiting on the Lord requires patient trust. Will I trust that God has good reasons for saying, wait? I may not know what they are, but I believe God knows what he's doing. And will I remember that things look differently to God because he's viewing things from his perspective of eternal things? In the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, here's how it reads. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. Um, I remember hearing about an economist who was pondering the wisdom of that particular passage of Scripture, and he talked to the Lord about it. He was saying, that's amazing, God. So a thousand years to you may be like a... I mean, to us may be like a minute to you. And God says, yes, that's right. And the economist said, so then a, a million dollars is just like a penny to you. And God said, that's right. So, well, Lord, can I have one of those pennies? God said, yes, you can. Wait here for one of those minutes. <laughs> Too often, we want God's resources, but we don't want his timing. We want the penny, but not the minute. We want his hand, but not his calendar. And we forget that what God does in us while we wait is as important as whatever it is we think we're waiting for. I read a story a while back that I thought was a beautiful portrait of waiting on God. The story was about a group of trapeze artists called the Flying Rodleys. They tried their best to explain the the unique relationship between the flyer on the trapeze and the catcher. The flyer is the one that has to let go and soar through the air, and the catcher is the one that, you know, pulls him or her out of the air. And as you can imagine, that's a real important relationship, especially to the flyer. (laughs) But when the flyer is high above the crowd on the trapeze, the moment comes when he or she has to let go. Then she arcs out into the air, and her job is to remain as still as possible and wait for the strong hands of the catcher to pluck her out of the air. And here's the deal with all this. The flyer must never try to catch the catcher. They must wait in absolute trust. Be still and wait in absolute trust. In the very same way, waiting on the Lord requires patient trust, like real trust. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Waiting on the Lord requires confident humility. Requires confident humility. Again, Psalm 37, be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. It's a quiet recognition of our own limits. Waiting by its nature is something only the humble can do, or at least do with grace. Because when I have to wait, I recognize that I'm not in control. I'm not calling the shots. It's not all about me. It's a humbling thing. 
Because in our society, there is a direct correlation between status and waiting. The higher your status, the less you have, the less you have to wait. The lower status person always seems to have to prefer and wait on the person of higher status. It just seems to be the way things work. And if you doubt that, next time you're at the doctor's office, just go and knock on whatever door the doctor is behind and tell him what to do. Just knock on that door and say, hey, doc, I'm not ready for you yet, okay? So why don't you go back to that little room where there's no magazines, and you wait for me until I'm ready, and you take your pants off as well. Put on one of those little paper robes. See how that goes. Waiting reminds me that I'm not in charge, but we also have to remember that he's doing something in us while we wait. And I can trust that he knows what he's doing. It requires confident humility. Here's the third thing. Waiting on the Lord requires, this is probably the most important one, waiting on the Lord requires inextinguishable hope. Say that with me. Waiting on the Lord requires inextinguishable hope. There's an incredible promise about waiting on the Lord in the Old Testament. I'm going to walk us through it. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 30, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, for some of us, I recognize those are very, very familiar words, but I'm going to unwrap them just a little bit. Sometimes, Isaiah says, sometimes you'll mount up or you will soar with wings as eagles. It's a powerful picture. I read up on birds a little while back, and I found out that birds basically have three methods of flight. Uh, No surprise to us, but the first one is called flapping. It's the most familiar. In other words, some birds just keep their wings in constant motion in order to counteract gravity. Hummingbirds flap their wings 100 times per second, I read that. Now, flapping keeps you up in the air, but it's a lot of work. It can be awkward and clumsy. I spend a lot of time flapping around, and I know what that's like, and you probably do too, and the person next to you has probably flapped a little bit as well. That's the first kind. The second kind of flying is called gliding, gliding. That's when a bird just builds up enough speed that it can just coast for a while, and it's really impressive to see, but because of gravity, it can never last all that long. The third kind is another kind of flying, And very few birds are even capable of it. It's called soaring. An eagle can soar. An eagle's wings are so strong that it's capable of just catching thermal winds, these rising currents of warm air that go straight up from the earth, and they can, without moving a feather, they can soar to incredible heights. Eagles have been clocked at over 80 miles per hour without flapping at all, just soaring on invisible columns of air. Isaiah writes that for those who wait on the Lord, there are times when you soar, when you soar. You just catch a gust of the Spirit. Some of you here are in a season of soaring. God's answering your prayers with extravagance. He's using you in ways that leave you astounded. He's giving you the power to rise above temptation and sin and flooding you with wisdom beyond your ability. You're soaring now, and if that's you, Be really grateful. Be really grateful. Do all you can to stay in the stream of the Spirit's power. But then there's the next kind. Some of us in this room are not soaring, but you're running and not growing weary. And if that's you, your life is not effortless right now. 
but with persistence and with determination, you know you're running the amazing race. You're staying the course. There may be flapping and struggles along the way, but you also feel the smile of God on your life. And if that's you, keep running. Keep obeying, keep serving, keep praying, keep running. Don't try to manufacture spiritual excitement that may not be there right now. And don't compare yourself to someone who's soaring. Your day will come. Keep running. Because when you run, you grow really strong. There's a third way. Some of us are not soaring and cannot even run. But because of pain or doubt or fatigue or failure, all we can do is just walk and try not to faint. Walk and not keel over. Some in this room, all you can say right now is, God, I'll hang on. I don't feel productive. I certainly don't feel triumphant. I'm hurt. I'm wounded. I'm confused. But God, I won't let go. I'll just keep walking. Let me just say a brief word to those who are in that third group. Around this church and in our community, we have some really, really fast runners. And we have some eagles that soar way high above where I can see. And it can be a hard thing to be a walker when you're surrounded by racers and eagles. But sometimes walking is the best you can offer God. And you know what? God understands. He gets it. He understands this a lot better than you think he does because he experienced it. Sometimes Jesus soared. And you can read about it in the Bible. I think on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he was overcome with the glory of God until the point where he was radiant, I think Jesus soared that day. I think when he stood next to the tomb of his good friend Lazarus, and a man who had been dead for four days suddenly hears a word that comes out of Jesus' mouth, and he walks out of that tomb alive and filled with life, I think Jesus soared that day. But he didn't always soar. There were days that he faced serious obstacles, and I think he just kept running. I think when he wept over Jerusalem, I think when he was frustrated because his disciples were so slow, so disciple-challenged, I think he just kept running. But that day came when he had to take the road to Calvary, and he wasn't soaring that day. When that cross was pushed onto his bruised and bleeding back, he did not sprint to Calvary that day. He was a young man, but he stumbled and fell that day. The creator of the universe's knees buckled and his back bent, and he fell, but he just kept walking. Sometimes walking is all you can do, and in those moments, thank God, walking is enough. In fact, let me say this. I think it's when the race is the hardest, when you want so badly to quit, but you don't. In those times, God prizes our walking even more than our running or our soaring. Because what we wait for is not more important than what God does in us while we wait. And the one that we wait for is worth the wait. Why don't you bow your heads and we'll pray. You see us all, Lord, exactly where we are in this world and in our own lives. You know the condition of our hearts. 
And you know, Lord, that there are some here that are soaring and things are just wonderful. And all the charts are pointing up and to the right. And it's a blessed time. And there are some, Lord, that know that they're in step with you, but it's difficult. Continue to bless them, Lord. And for those that are trudging right now, considering bailing, giving up, just throwing in the towel, I just pray, Lord, you give them strength for one more day. Fill your people with the strength that we need for the road that we're on this moment. Lord, I know all, all ends of the spectrum are represented here. Our trust in you, Lord, is because we know that you know us and you will meet us exactly where we are. So, Lord, for those that need strength, would you breathe into them this very day? We believe you'll do that, Lord. For those that are running and for those that are soaring, Lord, I pray their thoughts turn to you quickly with gratitude. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. Thank you for good seasons, for blessed seasons. But God, no matter where we are, I pray our hand stays firmly connected to yours. And that's our heart, Lord. We know you can do this, Lord. Now we believe that you will. In Jesus' name we pray.